This is Polyoptics, shining a light on the theater of politics. Now, from Washington, D.C., here's Adam Belmar. Thanks for joining us as we pull back the curtain on the events that shape American politics and drive the images and headlines. Polyoptics, the only show of its kind on the air today, and it's only on POTUS politics of the United States. This week, we take a hard look inside the United States Secret Service. Former Special Agent Dan Emmett joins the conversation and would take a really revealing look at the Presidential Protection Division. We'll figure out how protecting the most powerful man on the planet works and doesn't work with a man who stood ready to take a bullet for three U.S. presidents. And then we'll go inside the optics of the Trayvon Martin case with Michael Shaw of Bag News Notes. But I am joined, as always, by Josh King, co-founder of the website polyoptics.com. He was the production chief in the Clinton administration, the same role I played in the George W. Bush White House. And Josh, it is great to have you here. Great to be with you, Adam. This is a week where we'll talk a lot about uh, presidential photo ops, specifically the, of the type where uh, danger is lurking. The President Obama goes to South Korea, goes to the demilitarized zone between South and North Korea. We'll be talking about that later with Dan Emmett, retired Secret Service agent uh, of the Presidential Protection Division, who was with me in South Korea when President Clinton did that back in 1993. We'll look ahead to that. And then President Obama goes down to Seoul and has a very revealing meeting with his Russian counterpart. That's right. The president got caught with an open mic. Uh, After my election, I have more flexibility. I understand. I transmit this information to Vladimir. I understand. And, and in that open mic moment where the president is, is communicating that he is going to have a lot more flexibility to negotiate and deal with this relationship after the uh, the election says as much about him as it does the sock puppetry of, of Vladimir Putin with Medvedev, uh, you know, dutifully saying that he'll transmit the information. Well, that's right. And if we could have sat in for that entire meeting, that probably would have been the substance, which is he needs space uh, between now and November to be able to... Uh, properly uh, do the politics of an election year. And then what I think is going to be fascinating, Adam, as we continue on polyoptics through the weeks and months heading up to November and then beyond, is what could a second term Obama be like? Remember, President Clinton had great expectations for his second term. He was significantly derailed by impeachment. President Bush in his second term said he was going to, he had earned political capital and he would use it. And yet he was so waylaid by the two wars that the, mm-hmm. the the U.S. is fighting, what might a President Obama do unencumbered in a second term and and come either to the center or triangulate uh, against Republicans and Democrats and get a lot of things done in a second term? Well, we will ultimately deliver on the promise of taking you inside the White House and pulling back the curtain on the images that drive uh, the headlines. And we'll do that starting with our first guest, Dan Emmett. So, Adam, we have the great good fortune today of having uh, joining us on the show Dan Emmett, a retired Secret Service agent on the presidential protection detail and so many other facets of the U.S. Secret Service. The story is about 200 pages long, Adam. I think you and I both read it this week. And it begins very quietly in in Gainesville, Georgia, uh, on November 22nd, 1963. Dan's father owned a, a store, Emmett Furniture Co., and uh, a young man would just uh, be hanging out at his father's store, and everything seemed to change uh, in one crisp moment as news from Dallas filtered back. And uh, then a career that went from college to the U.S. Marine Corps 
to the Secret Service, uh, and then after 21 years retirement, uh, brings us to this book, Within Arm's Length, by Dan Emmett. Dan, welcome to Polyoptics. Oh, thanks very much. Glad to be here. So let's go back to that day, Dan, because uh, you write very movingly uh, about the scene in Gainesville and uh, and how you heard about the news and the relationship with your with your father and the people who worked for your father. Can you tell us how sort of the the uh, existence of Agent Clint Hill and what he did that day sort of helped to crystallize where your life would go? Yeah, sure. Um, 22 November 63, I was eight years old. Um, I was in the third grade. And I suppose uh, pretty impressionable, like a lot of kids are at that age. And I had just come out of school. Uh, we got out, I think, about 2, 2.30 in the afternoon, walking down the sidewalk. And one of my friends had said that President Kennedy was uh, had been assassinated. And I said, uh, okay, what does that mean? Because <laughs> I wasn't really familiar with the word. He said, he's dead. He's been killed. And... So I didn't really believe that. It seemed a little bit far-fetched to me that someone would kill President Kennedy. So I uh, climbed up in the cab of a uh, truck that my father's uh, delivery man uh, drove who came to pick me up at school, and I asked him about it, and he, he confirmed. He said, President Kennedy is definitely, he's dead. Um, so that that made a very big impression on me at that point, and uh Later on, you know, during the weekend is when I saw the photograph of Agent Clint Hill on the back of the Kennedy limo doing his best to protect President Kennedy and Mrs. Kennedy. Um, he had reacted, reacted in a phenomenally short amount of time. Um, in fact, he almost reached the rear of the limo uh, before the third round broke the headshot. So he, uh, his, his actions that day had a great impact on me. I was very, very moved, very impressed by that photograph. And I asked my father, I said, uh, Dad, who is this man on the back of the limo? And, and Dad explained it to me. He explained that that's a Secret Service agent. His job is to get between the assassin and the president and sacrifice his own life if necessary. That made a huge impact on me. And I remember thinking, what what a job that is, what that must be like. And maybe that's something exactly like I would want to do someday. Uh, so, of course, you know, little boys being little boys, different career ambitions came and went through the years, but that one always returned. Back in the day, I suspect, Dan, uh, the detail leader did not ride in the shotgun seat in the limo. Is that what happened that day? No, the uh, the agent in charge that day was, is actually the the DSAC, the deputy special agent in charge, he was in the right front of the limo. Um, so it's, it was the standard configuration, the same as, as we have today. I think the, the biggest difference, of course, is that uh, President Kennedy, unfortunately, was riding in an open-top limo uh, with a lot of tall buildings in the area. Unlike today, where presidents are completely enclosed in armor, uh, you're never going to see that again with the, uh, the convertible, uh, the president sitting in a convertible limousine. At the same time I was reading your book this week, uh, Robert Caro, the uh, prolific biographer of Lyndon Johnson, came out with a long piece, a preface to his fourth volume in the New Yorker magazine, and it really detailed November 22nd from Vice President Johnson's eyes and talked in, in incredible detail about the role of Rufus Youngblood, probably riding a few cars back in, in the motorcade, uh, hearing the report from the Texas School Book Depository and using his instincts, jumped on top of a, a, a very large vice president, stayed over him, 
during the chaotic ride to Parkland Hospital. And then it details a sort of movement through a hospital, certainly not advanced by a VPPD agent uh, or detail, uh, and then a lot of quick decision-making that got him back to Love Field and eventually sworn in as the next pr- next president of the United States and ultimately back to Washington. What's your understanding of the her- heroism of Rufus Youngblood in addition to Clint Hill that day in terms of quick thinking and being able to adapt to an unpredictable situation? Yeah, Mr. Mr. Youngblood was uh, right on his game that day. As soon as he perceived what was happening, he went over the front seat into the back seat and got on top of Vice President Johnson, which is exactly what he was supposed to do. Um, you know, his his response that day was absolutely perfect. So then, Dan, in 1984, you're a young agent, uh, and you've been on the in the agency for about a year, and you were just assigned a temporary detail to cover Senator Kennedy, uh, Senator Edward Kennedy, in the uh, 1984 election. And sort of everything comes home in terms of the 20-year distance between 63 and 84 with an opportunity that Senator Kennedy gave you. Can you describe that situation? Yeah, sure. You know, first of all, um, a lot of people wonder, well, why was the Secret Service protecting Ted Kennedy? He wasn't running for the office of any presidency or anything else. Uh, President Reagan assigned... Ted Kennedy, a Secret Service detail for the final 30 days of the 84 campaign because uh, the senator was actively campaigning for Walter Mondale all around the country, Mondale, of course, being the Democratic nominee. So that's how that detail actually came to pass. Um, We had been with Senator Kennedy for 30 days, and on the final day of uh, the campaign, in fact, we, we took him to vote that morning, and then he signed off protection meaning he no longer wanted us or needed us. And we all went back to the Kennedy compound there at Hyannisport. Um, We had a clam bake that he threw for us, uh, kind of a surprise, very nice of him to do that. And uh, later in the afternoon, as things were kind of winding down and people were starting to, to file onto the airport, he moved sort of among us and asked if there was anyone who would enjoy or would like to take a tour of President John F. Kennedy's house on the compound. So I I accepted immediately. I thought, uh, what a great opportunity. Uh, so Senator walked uh, myself and two other agents over to President Kennedy's home. He handed me the key and said, lock up when you're done. <laughs> and, you know, come find me and give, it, give me the key back to me. So... Um, walk, walking through the house, um, it was very, very eerie. Uh, all of President Kennedy's, or a lot of his things, rather, were, were still there in the house. His, uh, his business suits were still hanging in the closet, uh, some items of his jewelry on the dresser, um, magazines, books, things from 1963 still, still in the house. And it was uh, a very surreal experience, to say the least. And once uh, once I had finished touring the house, uh, I found him on the beach and returned the, the key to him. And we spoke for a few moments, but uh, I'll always remember that day. That it was uh, it was certainly an experience that I, I realized that very few people had ever been afforded, um, other than possibly the family itself. Dan, one of the things that uh, I enjoyed about the book is really a personal narrative. It's your story, but you do give the reader, especially those unindoctrinated into 
the ways of the United States Secret Service, its core mission of protecting the president, and some of the nuanced elements of how that job is done, it gives you some, some nice insight into that. As I went to work at the White House, having come out of the world of broadcast television and journalism, I had no real appreciation beyond those were the guys in suits with guns who protected the president, of how they worked hand in glove, ideally, with the White House staff when the president moves off the 18 acres. Um, And you give some really interesting examples in the book. But I want to get you to give us some opinion, some understanding of of how things play out from a what we like to call polyoptics perspective because really the protection of the president says a great deal to the rest of the world and to Americans uh, about the importance of our president and uh, how how we regard uh, those movements certainly after the assassination uh, and uh, assassination attempts that have occurred over the years tell us a little bit as you look at uh, what President Obama did in this past uh, trip to Korea, where he was at the DMZ. You found yourself there with former President Bill Clinton. How can you compare and contrast those two for us? <laughs> That's a real good question. Uh, of course, presidents have been going to Korea uh, really since the end of the conflict, since the hostilities ended in 1953. Um, it's The country is, of course, still formally in a state of war. Uh, the war never officially ended, just a ceasefire. So a state of war does still exist between North Korea and South Korea. That makes it a little more uh, dangerous, perhaps, to visit that country than maybe some other places that you might take the president. Um, generally speaking, the president is, uh, and anyone else, is fairly safe in South Korea. Uh, but the farther north you go, uh, the more hazardous it becomes, uh, the, farther you, the closer you get to the demilitarized zone. Now, President Obama, from what I could see on following his trip pretty much stayed within the confines of established military bases even though he was uh, up towards the DMC. Uh, He was generally in well sandbagged, bunkered, barbed wired, fortified positions where he could observe uh, North Korea, look into North Korea, kind of get an idea what's going on there. When President Clinton uh, decided to go to Korea and during the summer of 1993 (laughs) He uh, he went up a little closer than most presidents had in the past. Josh King, you were there for that trip. It was, uh, it, and I've told this story uh, before, Adam. I, I would I did not go to the Bridge of No Return, but I was there at the bunker when President Clinton looked over North Korea with the lens cap of his binoculars still on. <laughs> That's a polyoptic snafu, isn't it, uh, Dan? <laughs> oh well. <laughs> Well, we can we can blame the army officer who was hand, who handed them the binoculars, I suppose. But uh, the uh, the bridge of no return, for the listeners who are not familiar with it, is a very old concrete and wooden bridge that spans South Korea and North Korea, the part of the demilitarized zone. North Korea controls the northern part of the bridge. South Korea controls the southern part, and it is the bridge over which all of American POWs uh, were returned at the end of the conflict and the end of the hostilities. And it's also, interestingly enough, where First Lieutenant Army First Lieutenant Art Boniface was murdered in 1976 by North Korean soldiers with axes. He was literally hacked to death uh, at, that, at the exact same spot where, 
where we uh, took President Clinton on that particular day in July 1993. Now, I want to talk for our listeners uh, here on Polyoptics, Sirius XM, Channel 124, about a really interesting and not well-known element of the United States Secret Service that you played a, a really important role in, and that is what they call the CAT team. It's counter-assault, and uh, these are the guys who used to scare me to death uh, <laughs> in the West Wing, okay? Because in the book, you talk about the West Wing office, W-16. Um, now, I know where that is, and, and most people would uh, would not really appreciate the context of where it is on the, on the ground level of the... Uh, of the West Wing, but these guys are dressed in assault gear. They are wearing bulletproof vests, carrying unbelievable uh, automatic weapons, and they have one sole duty. And, and typically, if you're lucky, you won't have to carry out that duty. Talk to us about what that is. I mean, that's not just putting yourself in the line of fire for the president. That's saying it's hit the fan and we're go. Yeah, the uh, the counter-assault team is the tactical unit of the Secret Service whose stated mission is to respond to any organized attacks on the president uh, with speed, force, violence of action. Uh, those attacks would include multiple attackers, automatic weapons fire, uh, anything and everything that the, the working shift couldn't really handle on its own. Uh, the primary duty, then, of the CAT team is to stay back and fight a delaying action while the working shift covers and evacuates the president. Um, they're probably among the most physically fit agents in the service, certainly the best in weapons and tactics, but they, uh, they've attained that status basically through in very intense training that never ends. Uh, you're either working the president or you're training. Those are the, that, that's your entire life. Dan, you talk about um, the cultural differences between the sort of legacy PPD and the CAT. And then sort of very quickly you mention in the book that uh, surprisingly CAT was folded into PPD. Can you talk about the sort of cultural uh, chasm that existed between the two parts of the PPD and sort of how that has evolved over time since since you were on the CAT? Yeah, you know, any time you have an elite within an elite, you might say there are going to be issues in the beginning. Uh, the military certainly experienced it. When the Army incorporated special forces and the Navy brought, had the SEAL teams and so on, um, it's conventional versus non-conventional type units. And when you put the two together, uh, there can be some, some problems of sorts in the beginning. Um, traditionally, PPD, coat and tie, guys in business suits, arms linked to the president, that had been the situation since 1901, 1902, when the service began protecting presidents. And there were a lot of people who felt that CAT was uh, unnecessary, that it had always been handled by the working shift, and CAT was really not needed. So in the beginning, there was some, some friction over more than anything how to employ CAT. Uh, when you have conventional leaders who all at once inherit unconventional forces, they, they don't always know exactly the best way to utilize them. That's quite interesting, especially when you consider uh, the, the polyoptics of all of this. I mean, the President of the United States is a political position. He's also the Commander-in-Chief. We understand the sort of dichotomy um, that, that exists uh, for a President. And part of that is getting out and being with people, uh, whether that's events or campaign events, traveling the country, uh, doing what we would call, uh, you know, a... Uh, unscheduled stop uh, on a trip and of course uh, 
you know, the, the, the Secret Service have to be uh, involved in all of this. And, and one of the things that I enjoyed, because I could relate to it personally, Dan, was some of the discussion that you give to working with the uh, staff within the West Wing, of course, the uh, advanced staff in the presidential uh, executive office of the president. Um, but talk to us for a second about the tug back and forth between how much protection the Secret Service would always love to afford the president and the ever-increasing challenges that are presented by uh, you know, the communications needs of a White House that needs to get the president out there on a regular basis. He can't be in that bubble or perceived to be surrounded by men with guns and inaccessible. <laughs> right. You know, every president and, of course, the president's staff wants, wants the president to get out and be as accessible to the taxpayers and to the voters as possible. Well, of course, the Secret Service, if, if we had our way, he'd never leave the White House, but uh, that's not practical. And so the the president and the staff come up with uh, places that he would like to go, people he'd like to say hello to, um, the, things of that sort. And then it's the Secret Service job to build a security plan around that. And with, that's why the staff and the agents have to work so closely together. Um, and that's the reason I wrote that section in the book, was to give the reader an idea of, you know, all of the things that agents uh, experience, not just standing next to the president, but uh, the complexities of conducting advances, coordinating with staff, and uh, all of the different things that uh, actually go into protecting the president when he leaves the White House. And here I should probably sort of weigh in to sort of offer that the other side of the fence view. And, and Dan, you, you know, you, you, you sketch a portrait of probably a, a young female colleague of mine, 1993, 1994, don't know who it is, I could guess, uh, about how, you know, a person who probably joined Governor Clinton's campaign in late 1991, worked throughout 1992, ever increasing perimeters of security as this... Uh, Southern governor becomes the more likely nominee and then the more likely president, then president-elect and then president. So people still operated under the idea that this was just Bill and he could just leave the governor's mansion in Little Rock and go to a st- go to a restaurant or walk the streets and do whatever he wanted. And young people like myself would get into the White House uh, after in January 1993 and say, it's it's got to be the same because this is this is why people put Clinton in office. And you would go out on advances, and you very well make the point that presidents sort of realize the assets available to the Marine One, Air Force One. They could go anywhere in the world with very little notice and do just about anything that they wanted to do. And the, the people who come into the White House have very little training compared to your sort of many years in the New York field office and need to work on par with you. So they either get what your mission is and figure out how to work within it or or compromise, or there be, there comes to be a level of contention. Can you talk about how sort of you saw that and how that person evolved and also maybe how you evolved or maybe how you didn't evolve? <laughs> well, that's a great question. Um, of course, uh, when, when you and the others uh, from Clinton's, President Clinton's staff came into the White House in 1993, we had just gotten... The Republicans had just left office, where we had been with them for 12 years. Yeah. Uh, the Secret Service, we being Secret Service, uh, eight years of President Reagan, of course, and then four years of President Bush. So we were used to working with them. They were used to working with us, and then all at once they're gone, and in comes an entirely new administration with a, a group of very young people 
who were not used to our way of doing things, uh, were not used to the way presidents are handled versus presidential candidates. And so there was, uh, of course, as you recall, <laughs> some some growing pains there between staff and the Secret Service. Now, of course, I, I do point out uh, later on in the book, in that part of the book, that uh, as time went on, we did work very well together. And it was just largely a matter of uh, two entities coming together that had never been together and learning how the plan worked. Um, you know, over time, it was it was absolutely, by the time I left the presidential detail, um, things had improved immensely. And that young lady that I speak of in the book, uh, I also write in the book that I ran into her later on. We did another site together, a much larger, much more complex site. And she was an entirely different person. It, it was apparent that uh, she had matured a great deal and that maybe perhaps I had, you know, changed a little bit, too, in uh, my ability to be a little more understanding and tolerant. You know, the Secret Service agents that I came to know and during my time in, in, in the Bush White House, uh, 2007, 8, beginning of 2009, I was really surprised uh, at how uh, they carried on uh, really two separate lives. Not that we all didn't, but so many of the men that, that I came to know were fathers of young children. It turned out that we, we lived close together in Northern Virginia. Our kids were in school together. And as hard and as demanding as the job that, that I felt I had was, uh, I knew full well that they were away from their children, away from uh, you know a normal home life so much more. And of course, it's very different from a military deployment. And, and you served in the United States Marine Corps. Uh, you left as a captain. Um, but that training from a physical and arms perspective served you very well. Did it build a discipline in you that you, you, you found pervaded the Secret Service, or, or did you really find that they had this weird cross-section? A lot of people in the service, especially these days, didn't come up through the military ranks. How do you see that evolution? Of course, I should remind listeners that you spent the last part of your career training your successors and being a mentor to young agents. I think that uh, being a Marine Corps officer, I, I, I and people like me that came from the military certainly brought a, a great deal more self-discipline along the way than those that uh, didn't have the opportunity to serve in the military. So the curve for us was not so much when it came to physical hardship, travel, being away from home, going, you know, days literally sometimes without sleep. Uh, those are things that, however, um, agents do learn even without a military background. It's just the culture of the service, and it begins very early on when junior agents begin protecting presidential candidates or foreign heads of state, they quickly learn uh, how to operate uh, on virtually, you know, no sleep, sleep deprivation, nutritional deprivation, being away from home up to 30 days at a time. So I think those of us who had military experience probably didn't have as tough a time transitioning uh, into the Secret Service as the other folks did. But uh, ultimately, they make that transition. And the ones that don't end up leaving uh, it's just really as simple as that, that uh, being a Secret Service agent is certainly not for everyone. And after about maybe three, four years, uh, a person realizes that this is what they want to do for the rest of their professional careers, or 
they just really are not cut out for it, and they go other places. All right, I want to take this conversation to a different direction. I want to pretend that I know very little about the Secret Service, that I may be somebody who's listening to Polyoptics here on POTUS, hasn't read the book, wants to now, um, but I, I want to ask you some basic questions that people might ask you uh, in your life when they find out what you had done for a living and, and, and the kind of man that, that, that you are. Number one, why in God's name, does the Secret Service ever let the President of the United States drive around in a car with an open open top? Well, How did that were... happen? <laughs> That's the way it was in 63. That makes me wonder, what is going on today that we shouldn't be doing that just is the way it is? Oh, well, I think that uh, just common sense would dictate that uh, if you're going to expose a president as President Kennedy was exposed back in 63, you could probably expect pretty much the same result. Um, there are a lot of people out there that wish America ill, that do not wish our leaders well. And uh, to expose a sitting president to direct line of sight to thousands of people who have not been swept, not been through magnetometers, not been x-rayed, you're really just asking for it. So uh, it was just a different time in our history. Um, and the Secret Service always has always been very good, very astute at learning from things that have gone wrong. You lose a president, you look at it, and you go, how did we lose him? Why did we lose him? Let's, let's fix that so that that doesn't happen again. Well, so that, that was the end result. Well, that gets to, to some of these sort of existential questions of the presidency, which is, and I think in a couple instances in your book, you, you express exasperation that the president is going to do something, but you realize that you have to follow through with the mission anyway and do the best that you can. And one of the things you don't write about in the book, but I think it's probably contemporaneous with both of our experiences, was when President Clinton went to the Bob Hope Chrysler Classic uh, out, in our, out in California. Were you there for that, Dan? I don't recall being on that trip. No, it doesn't I mean, ring a bell. He, uh, he, he played golf with President Ford, first President Bush, um, and Bob Hope. It was an amazing foursome, and yet it was in the middle of the Celebrity Pro-Am, and I'm sure you know it's very difficult to either mag that full gallery crowd or to properly cover the high ground in what was basically a desert scene. Yeah, well, it's uh, it's like I've been asked many times, can you 100% can you assure the safety of the president? And there's absolutely no agent that will tell you that they can. If they tell you that, they're, they're not being realistic. What the Secret Service does is minimize the risk, minimizes the threat. But yet, uh, you know, the, the president in an open society like we live in, he's going to go out, he's going to be among the people. That's, that's kind of what America's all about. And that's what the Secret Service is about. Uh, no matter what he does, no matter where he goes, it's the, the job of the service to to build that uh, layer of protection around him so that uh, he can go out, meet the people, be with the people, and do it in relative safety. I got two more questions for you as we sort of wrap up this great conversation with you, uh, Dan Emmett. One thing is that uh, fiction writers tend to expand our ideas and understanding of what is avant-garde in terms of threat. And we so often, uh, from a military perspective, talk about preparing for the last war. Uh, bullets are a very dangerous thing for anyone, and of course it's it's one of the primary uh, issues that uh, the service thinks about, you know, what kind of weapons might people use. But of course the threat extends to chemical weapons, uh, to 
poison, keeping a very close eye on the president and the president's health is is also part of the job because subtle things can be recognized by the service. And, and what you defend against is oftentimes not really uh, something that, that the average or layperson could uh, could understand. Do you have confidence that uh, that the current PPD protocols are, are really looking at the panoply of, of threats that are out there, even if we don't understand them as lay people in the country? Oh, absolutely. Uh, the Presidential Protective Division, along with its support elements and the Technical Security Division that takes care of, of course, the president's uh, environmental threats and looks at that. These are the best agents, I, I think, that in the history of the service, and uh, they have the most thought that goes into it that's ever been. And I would say that today the Presidential Protective Division is probably the best the best it's been in the history of the service. So let me follow up with this final question for you. Uh, as, a, as a former Bushy, uh, I want to know what you thought when uh, the 43rd President of the United States had one, but wait, a second shoe thrown at his head <laughs> at point-blank range and nary a Secret Service agent jumped in front of the shoe. Yeah. No one took a size nine for the boss. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Well, you know, unless you... Uh, Unless you remove everyone's clothing to include their shoes when they come into an event, of course, uh, those things can happen. Uh, those boys flat-footed that day. The, well, there's an old saying too that action is quicker than reaction. I don't, I don't know what I don't know the velocity of a shoe uh, traveling from that <laughs> distance, but uh, <laughs> uh, President Bush was on his game that day, certainly, and uh, he was able to avoid. The Wasn't threat. he though? <laughs> so, Dan, as we wrap, uh, and we uh, we. Adam and I hugely appreciate you coming on uh, Polyoptics on Sirius XM 124. Um, basically, a fundamental question about the future of the Secret Service, as you observe it now as a retired agent, obviously with many friends still in. Uh, many changes happened in the last decade, particularly after 9-11. The traditional uh, uh, home of the Secret Service, the U.S. Treasury Department, was they transferred it to the Department of Homeland Security. And... Uh, you know, you write about how your investigative years at New York field office and other places helped prepare you and also served as a proving ground for your ability to go to the PPD. And yet, can we be honest at all and, and ask ourselves whether uh, the investigative role of the service is appropriate for your agency versus giving it to uh, the FBI, for example, while at the same time you talk about the misconceptions that people have of who protects the Speaker of the House and the Secretary of State falls to Capitol Hill Police or Department of State Security, and yet the Secret Service is the preeminent protective federal agency. Why wouldn't you, why wouldn't the, the service, and I know Mark Sullivan has been debating this uh, a lot, uh, why wouldn't the service surrender its investigative role and absorb more of its protective role and gets rid of some of the bureaucracy across several law enforcement layers? That's a that's a long question. <laughs> but, uh, first of all, in terms of PPD, let me just say that the, the men and the women that are there now are the ones that I trained, and they're, they're all outstanding, and I have the greatest faith in, in all of them that they're doing fantastic work in keeping the president safe these days. Um, in terms of the investigative role versus the protection role, the Secret Service started out as an investigative organization investigating counterfeit currency. And if you look at the investigations of the Secret Service, they're relatively simple and relatively small in comparison to those of, say, the FBI. So protection 
will always be the most important thing that the Secret Service does. Protecting the President of the United States is without question the most important thing the service does. However, in order to get the agents to the level that they need to be to do that, the the field where people learn to do investigations is really the proving ground. And there's absolutely no doubt that the best protection agents were the best investigative agents. It's the field where you learn how to deal with people, how to conduct interviews, how to think on your feet, how to handle dangerous situations, and, uh, you know, begin to uh, handle adversity, physical adversity, standing up for long periods of time, standing in the rain for long periods of time. So I, I think that it would be, in my opinion, it would be an error for the service to give up its investigative role and do strictly protection. It's a very good mission. It's balanced. Uh, half the mission is protection. The other half is investigations. And I think it works very well that way. But wouldn't you think that maybe you could take on uh, uh, high-ranking high members of Congress or high-ranking diplomats like the Secretary of State and say, you guys focus on diplomacy or on legislation and let the best protectors do the protecting of the people who we can't afford to lose? Well, those people that you mentioned, of course, they all have very important jobs, but the the people that do protect them are very good at their work, too. And if you look at their methods and their tactics, most of it came from Secret Service doctrine. Um, I actually reviewed the Capitol Police protective procedure several years ago when I was uh, an agent in, in training division. That was one of my collateral duties, was to go and, and see what they were doing per their request. In, in order for the Secret Service to do what you suggest, um, it would either have to give up its investigative mission or it would have to hire hundreds, if not thousands, of more new agents. And, and I think that one of the things that has always set the Secret Service apart from other organizations was the fact, or is the fact, that it's, it's a relatively small. When I became an agent, I think there were 1,600 of us. When I left, I think there were around 3,000, which is... Uh, very small in comparison to the FBI, for example. It has somewhere over 16,000 special agents. Well, Dan Emmett, after you're deciding that the Secret Service was a career path for you on November 22, 1963, after service in the U.S. Marine Corps, leaving as a captain after 21 years in the Secret Service and then the Central Intelligence Agency, and a career in uh, consulting that has succeeded after that. Thank you very much for your service to the nation, and thank you very much for spending time with Adam and me on Polya. Hey, I really enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Well, talking about the United States Secret Service and the optics of the presidency is an interesting thing to do, but I think it's even more interesting when you get the... Uh, the insider perspective like we have with Dan Emmett. That's right. I remember Dan very clearly, and, and when I look at the pictures in his book, uh, Within Arm's Length, I remember clearly many times we worked together on advances or we worked together uh, work, uh, traveling with the press with President Clinton. Look, he came across as a very much buttoned-down, taciturn, no fools, or no fooling around guy. There were plenty of people in the PPD who I had a, a lighter relationship with, but few that I thought were sort of more focused in uh, doing the job day in, day out than Dan Emmett. And yet he details in his book, Adam, how physically difficult and grueling it was to get that job done. I mean, I thought I was working hard. I would work sort of 
uh, round the clock getting ready for a game day, but then I could really relax. There's no relaxing with the Secret Service. Indeed. Uh, it is just uh, the closer you get to it, uh, the more you begin to understand that. Well, let's go ahead and turn the page because I want to read the pictures. And there's some great polyoptics that we've experienced over the last uh, week or so, especially with the president being out of Washington and some little open mic fun that we might also touch on. But we are joined by Polyoptics contributor, the editor and founder of Bag News Notes, Michael Shaw. Welcome back to the broadcast. Great to be here with you guys again this morning. A lot of good pictures this week. Absolutely. I mean, we've just got to start with this this whole Etch-A-Sketch scene that has been so much in uh, in the news and pictured as a prop. Josh, will you just get Polyoptics listeners up to speed on where the Etch-A-Sketch controversy started and how we got here? And Michael, you'll tell us what it means. Sure, Adam. I mean, it really begins on Wednesday, March 21st, if my memory serves. And I'm sort of scanning the wires, and I'm seeing that there's something that's moving that's getting retweeted a lot, which is a picture of an Etch-A-Sketch of uh, Mitt Romney on family vacation with his dog Seamus in a dog crate on the hood. And that's something that you, me, and Michael have talked about in the past. And that must have got sort of in the subconscious of Romney headquarters, because a little later that morning... Eric Fernstrom, the press secretary to uh, Governor Romney, uh, um, is on a remote satellite broadcast with a news uh, anchor and asks him the question, and the anchor asks him the question of uh, how can Governor Romney reposition himself for the general election? And Fernstrom says something like, oh, it's just like an Etch-A-Sketch. You can shake it up and start all over again. And while Romney might have, and Fernstrom might have been referring to something else, it is immediately seized upon by the press and then by uh, uh, Rick Santorum and Newt Gingrich. Suddenly, the Etch-A-Sketch is the most popular prop in American politics. And I'm driving along in Philadelphia, and I'm trying to find out, well, who makes Etch-A-Sketch? And it turns out it's the Ohio Art Company. And I do a little more investigation and says, is this a public company? Yes, it is. What's their stock like? Well, it's traded over the counter in basically pennies. And that day afterward, the the, the stock price for Ohio Art went up about 1,000%. Well, it, in a way, this is just, it doesn't require that many words. That's what's amazing about it. You know, Carl Rove said, uh, my favorite quote, uh, politics is TV with the sound off. I mean, you have Madison Avenue and you have political spinmeisters that are working, you know, day in, day out for major amounts of money to try and come up with visuals that really get into people's heads. And th- this, in terms of handing it over to the opposition, is a classic. I mean, this is a, a visual metaphor that uh, that gets into people's heads. It's a great visual metaphor, something you can feel, you can think, you can touch at the same time. Uh, I mean, this is not going to go away. This is uh, an image that just tells the whole story just by looking at it. And we're going to see these on the campaign trail. You're going to have uh, 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 people that are protesting Mitt Romney that are going to be standing there with these devices, holding them up up in the air, and they're not going to have to say anything else. Well, let's just, let's know, break it down from a really psychological a perspective, right? I mean, you know, if if you don't remember, Michael Shaw is a clinical psychologist, and and Josh and I like to read our own things into it. But isn't the supposition here that, uh, as Josh sort of alluded to, that his closely held political beliefs are only as, you know, seriously defined as, uh, as, as, as an impermanent as something on the face of an Etch-A-Sketch? 
but that's the that's the metaphorical imagery of it, Adam. That you somehow out of your own team's mouth, out of Eric Fernstrom's mouth, he comes up with the one consumer product that, by its very definition, has no permanence to it. That only a slight shake of its existence can wipe from its face everything that it that it is that is already on it. So, if there was any sort of handing to First, in the first notion, Team Santorum and Team Gingrich, and later to Team Obama, the description of what the the Achilles heel of Mitt Romney is, it would be the metaphysical uh, existence of the Etch-a-Sketch, and it, it was a uh, it was a metaphor and a prop brought into the campaign, not by his opponents, but by something that his own press secretary said on the air. Right, and and metaphysical and physical. I mean, it's one thing to have these. Uh, uh, metaphors or these um, analogies uh, that are damaging to uh, Romney, like uh, the the Seamus incident and you know the dog on the roof, but that it requires someone bringing it up in words and language, and then someone having to to visualize it once you know the the words have been delivered. But this happens with an object. I mean, that's it, it just doesn't get more uh, you know elegant than that. This is this is if, as if you could hold up a, a back in. Uh, the Dukakis race, if someone could like hold up a tank, and then you said, "Oh, yeah, you know that." Now I get the picture. This does it all, you know, in one shot. It, you know it, what I've what Adam and I have said over many different episodes is the power of a prop in American uh, visual uh, photojournalism, and I used yeah. to do it all the time, which is, okay, President Clinton is going to um, a police academy training center. You have him hold up a badge or have him hold up a trigger lock, or he's going to uh, the opening day of the baseball season. Have him stand in the dugout with a baseball bat in his hand because photographers can't, ris- can't resist the notion of having an object that helps tell the story in addition to the physical being of the subject. We go to uh, the Final Four basketball uh, NCAA Final Four in Charlotte, North Carolina. I hand the president a basketball, and I tell him, Mr. President, when you get up to the top of the stairs in Air Force One, cock your, your elbow back and launch this basketball high up into the air. I'm going to have a CBS camera shooting it, and I'll catch the ball, but that very fact is going to be woven in that evening to the opening uh, video sequence of CBS Sports, you're going to be seen by by millions of basketball viewers in a positive light as if you're throwing a ball into the hoop in Charlotte. I am so shocked prop- that you wouldn't manipulate the press in this way, Joshua. Th- that's <laughs> a pro- that's There's what gambling props- in that casino? <laughs> Didn't Gore that's actually what- produce a lockbox, a physical one, during a debate which helped close the gap with Gore uh, with Bush? I don't remember the actual physical lock box. I remember Gore saying, it is a lock box. Right. But I but don't remember the power. actual. But we talked with, um, who do we talk with, Adam, about uh, Ross Perot and the introduction of charts into a debate? Yeah. Oh, oh yes. Right. No, absolutely. We were speaking with Steve Ratner. That's right. All right. Let, let me turn the, the page here, because if you have been alive and breathing, and right. Lord knows all of you who are POTUS <laughs> listeners do a hell of a lot more than that, you're no stranger to the really very sad story that we've all come to know about the uh, death of Trayvon Martin uh, at the hands of George Zimmerman. This is playing out uh, as a uh, very large racial narrative in the press, even as we struggle to find uh, the facts, if they can be ascertained, and a truth that is 
ever increasingly difficult to find because everyone is dug in. But in only one place have I seen a really wonderful, thoughtful progression of understanding of the optics here. And Michael Shaw, you have done that so well. So take us through it. How have Americans first come to know and see and understand the facts of who Trayvon Martin is? And how is that Uh, developed over new images and our understanding of more of each man's background? Well, just to set the table a little bit from a visual standpoint, this is an incredible story just in terms of optics, just how much we're seeing, um, as opposed to a picture of these people, we're seeing visual stereotyping and then also a sort of a PR war back and forth uh, where the images are being used from the standpoint of visual persuasion. You know, um, visual media does not do a very good job when it comes to uh, nuance or ambiguity. Um, and so, you know, a lot of times when we see images uh, in the media and the ones that get self-selected by editors uh, are going for drama, they're, going, they're very dichotomous, they like, it's either like you know, there's an either-or component to it, they're, there's a kind of, you know, they want to put a visual story in terms of like, who's the hero, who's the villain. This is the absolute worst situation to like run it run through those kinds that kind of right because we, we we kind of started with this very young um prepubescent image of Trayvon Martin uh with a wonderful smile and and we started with a sort of very angry looking sour-faced uh George Zimmerman and very quickly it turned into an older, maybe a little bit more sinister-looking Trayvon Martin and a more upscale, smiling, upstanding citizen George Zimmerman. Optically, even though the facts uh, are still coming out, this is what people are seeing. Am I right? Uh, absolutely. Phase one, we could call, uh, because it seems like we've gone through four phases of this already and, and more to come. But uh, uh, the immediate aftermath, we had release of photos uh, of Trayvon by the family, uh, there was two photos um, primarily that really circulated. One shows him in, uh, and both of them, by the way, he's 11 years old. This is a 17-year-old kid who was, who was killed. So uh, one picture shows him in a T-shirt, uh, and he just looks like a, an angel. Then the other photo, which really unleashed all kinds of uh, reactions in the culture, shows him wearing a hoodie, and he's leaning forward, and there's a sort of a, a little bit mean, but more like deer-in-the-headlights kind of vulnerable, vulnerable look to him. So you have those two pictures floating out there for a solid week, juxtaposed with one image and one image only of this George Zimmerman, uh, and it shows him looking a, a little scruffy. It, it basically, it, it, it's not basically it is. It's a mug shot. He was not arrested, but he was taken into custody before he was released. And this photo, he's wearing this orange um, jumpsuit. I mean, it's almost like a Gitmo shot. You know, so you've got <laughs> these two unbelievably empathic uh, and sensitive photos of this 11-year-old angel up against this picture of, of, you know, this guy. And by the way, he also is half um, Hispanic, half white. So there's a, an ethnic component to it. So, you know, it's up against this image of Zimmerman. Uh, and people just went crazy seeing, seeing the difference. But, and, and maybe it, they're completely true and representative, but they're also incredibly stereotypical. Um, and that's where it sort of set us up for, uh, you know, phase two, which is what happened when Zimmerman, uh, and I think his attorneys were prompting a lot of this, 
um, it came out that his statement was that he had been attacked by uh, Trayvon Martin uh, and that he was the victim. And at that point, you had uh, a flip in terms of how, how the imagery was playing. Another picture was produced of, uh, and started circulating of uh, Zimmerman. And this time we see him with a big smile, all cleaned up. He's wearing it like a coat and tie. And then that was juxtaposed uh, by an image that ABC uh, propagated over the weekend, uh, also emphasizing certain news about how um, Trayvon wasn't exactly a model citizen, that when he was visiting his father in uh, Florida, he was actually on school suspension, that kind, that kind of thing. The, the image that ABC was circulating then with that, that report was um, – uh, uh, was grabbed off of a uh, flyer that was used to announce his memorial. And it shows him, I think, in the back of a limousine, but written on it uh, was his name and then a skull and crossbones. And, it, and the way that ABC cropped it, it had almost sort of like this gangster kind of, you know, connotation to it. So uh, that, that, that was just up to phase three. So I'm... I don't know if you want to like. Well, slow I, I, it I, I want to hear what Josh King has to say about all this because I, I know that uh, none of us should rush to judgment here. I mean, we know it's a tragedy. I mean, anytime we have a young person's life uh, lost, it, it's a tragedy. Now, uh, this will be adjudicated. People need to look at this and take a slow, thoughtful progression of an investigation here but it is playing out on the national stage josh king and uh it's even something that people are looking at across the pond aren't they well yeah adam i mean this is something we've seen before and it's the the mix of when you have i think law enforcement race and the president of the united states and president obama involved himself in the situation i think in 2009 uh, with Henry Louis Gates and the Cambridge Police, mm-hmm. 2009 or 2010, resulting in the Beer Summit, and the president weighed in early on in that situation. The Cambridge Police uh, acted stupidly in arresting somebody when they, there was already proof that they were in their own home. I think he waited for a few days to discuss the Trayvon Martin case, and then also uh, came to the microphone and said, if I had a son, He'd look like Trayvon. But my main message is is uh, to the parents of uh, Trayvon Martin. Um, you know, if I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon. And I think they are right to expect that all of us, as Americans, uh, are going to take this with the seriousness it deserves, and that we're going to get to the bottom of exactly what happened. And that seemed to be a dramatic accelerant to the discussion of this awful topic. Uh, and it has only continued. And yet, just like Henry Louis Gates and the Cambridge Police, in which there's no photography of what happened on that porch in Cambridge, there's no uh, there's no photography of what happened in Sanford, Florida. And all you have to work with to visually describe these stories after President Obama made his statement are the conflicting headshots that uh, Michael brings up. And what age is Trayvon when he's pictured? And in what clothing uh, is George Zimmerman uh, when he is pictured? And as you are trying to understand what happened on that street in Stanford, the only thing that a viewer, a reader, a news consumer has to go on is two head and shoulders pictures of assailant and victim. And then at the end of the day, 
you 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 precipitate a debate about who exactly is the assailant and who exactly is the victim, and it's frankly something that that's what investigations are for, and you, you only wish that people could could not weigh in until all the facts are really known. Michael Shaw, you get the last word here. Wow, you know, I, I think the last word is that there's no last word on this. This, uh, this story, uh, because of the ambiguity of it, is going to uh, continue to spin out. Uh, and I think that it's quite likely next week we'll be talking about it uh, again. I mean, this, this story is a cultural Rorschach. Uh, and, and if anything, it just um, reflects how much America still has, uh, you know, how, how far we still have to go. Uh, in in terms of dealing with 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 race, um, you know, we we could we could pick up the conversation, and keep talking about you know the politics of the hoodie and uh, how the Miami Heat, you know, jumped into it, and and we saw them you know putting out images uh, in sol- in solidarity. Uh, what happened on the floor of the Congress with um, Bobby Rush uh, when he put on a hoodie and then basically you know almost got kicked out of the building. It, it, it really is saying a lot more about us, I think, than it is even about the principles involved. Well, I, I encourage everybody who is a fan of polyoptics and a fan of Michael Shaw to follow up on all of this at bagnewsnotes.com because uh, you're keeping all of us uh, up on, on where this goes visually and breaking it down. Uh, and I appreciate that. And I appreciate you being here on Polyoptics this week. We will be back again with you very soon, Michael. Thank you. Great to be with you. Red. POTUS. Not blue. POTUS. Red, white, and blue. POTUS.